Good morning from WKYT News. I'm Bill Bryant, and we welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers. Hope you're having a nice weekend. Later, we'll hear from WKYT Sports Director Brian Milam about UK great Tim Couch finally being named to the College Football Hall of Fame. That's later. But first, most Kentuckians live in cities rather than in unincorporated areas, and our cities face challenges and opportunities at every turn. Residents expect first responders to come fast and be properly equipped and trained. They also want streets paved, sidewalks maintained, parks and recreational opportunities, and those big festivals and events that draw people to their town. And while the state is trying to eliminate its own income tax, it forces local governments to largely rely on what they can take in from workers' paychecks. J.D. Cheney is the executive director and CEO of the Kentucky League of Cities that provides advice and services to its members, and he's joining us today. Thank you for coming in. We appreciate it. Thanks for having it. me, Bill. I appreciate we it. Uh, we appreciate you coming in. We won't pick on Frankfurt much, but uh, they are making some decisions that cities will have to live with, it appears, or at least that is uh, in some of the proposals right now. Uh, how difficult is it at times for, for cities to comply with some of the mandates that uh, come out of Frankfurt? We ha we, there's a bit of a, a bit of a change in, in tenor that we've, we've seen over the past couple of years. I'll tell you that uh, um, from, from our perspective, we've always in our organization and city government officials have always believed that local decisions are best made at the local level. Uh, Frankfurt seems a little more responsive to that sometimes. If they don't don't agree, at least some legislators will file legislation. If they don't agree with that decision, preempt it, uh, impose mandates. So we're seeing some erosion of that that concept, which seemed to be a core principle belief by most of the members of the General Assembly, uh, that that kind of uh, uh, going by the wayside to some extent. But we have a lot of legislators there who still firmly believe in that principle notion that uh, local citizens elect those people, put them in the same seats, the same constituents to make decisions that are best made at the community level, can be more efficiently administered at the local level than they can can from Frankfurt. But unfunded mandates uh, do deviate from local priorities and projects and, and preemption. Uh, changing local decisions from a legislative deliberative body is, uh, is something that uh, we want to we want to continue to protect. Yeah, Kentucky has famously this uh, urban-rural divide, right? And yet, uh, most Kentuckians live in in the in city limits across the yeah. state. There, everybody knows there's 120 counties, but there are 414 incorporated cities in Kentucky, uh, and most of our citizens live in that. In fact, we're approaching 60 percent of our residents living inside the incorporated boundaries of one of those 414 cities. That urban-rural divide, most of our cities are rural in nature. Right. It's not, they're not great metropolises. They have some of the same rural difficulties uh, that that you would see on the national discussion, but uh, uh, we're, we're, uh, we're, we are going into city governments here in, in, inside of city limits in a massive way in Kentucky. If you look at the trends in the census over the last, last uh, 30 years or so. And one place where there's a real rub with that is that cities that want to grow often want to annex, and that is into counties, and uh, oftentimes a revenue question is what really uh, causes a, a lot of uh, friction, and there is a lot of that right now. Yeah, we, I mean, there's there's a lot of misunderstanding and, and perhaps uh, misinformation out there about the, the process of annexation. By, by and large, if a city uh, wants to grow, that is usually... 
almost 95% of the time initiated by a property owner who wants to be part of the city but they want to get the fire, the police services, the utility services or other types of amenities that the city government offers so they approach the city in, in, in most cases here in this state 95% of the time over the past uh, seven or eight years those property owners want to be part of the city. There are, there are some arcane statutes out there. Uh, Kentucky's famous for those uh, that, that treat some cities differently where there's a revenue shift when, when that occurs. But by and large, what you, what you will see in terms of restricting those property owner rights, you'll see county budgets grow as a result of, of city growth. So as cities grow, the county government budgets generally tend to grow and they're benefited uh, from from that as well, but it does. Our, our constitutional provisions, some of those statutes, do have some built-in built-in tensions, and uh, and I think we have some county government leaders out there who want to correct some past government governance errors and decisions about how they've imposed taxes and come and and maybe try to take that away from city government taxpayers uh, to the benefit of the county. The roles and responsibilities of both local governments are very different. Uh, you know, county governments are designed to deliver those statewide services at the local level. And you think of cities, we, could, we say cities, uh, but those are our hometowns. Those are the ones that are, are responsible for doing the things you just listed off. They're, place, they're, they're in the placemaking business, the quality of life business, to provide those recreational opportunities, the public safety uh, for, in terms of police and fire, uh, and the programs and services that, that really want to keep people in Kentucky or attract them to our Commonwealth. The League has said for some time and more loudly in recent years uh, that cities need more flexibility when it comes to revenue. One local leader said we can't get by on rooftops. Uh, in other words, uh, property tax isn't enough uh, for really cities or counties at this point. So the localities are asking for more flexibility. What would you like to see? Yeah, we have we have beat that drum. Our organization and city leaders across the across the state for a number of years has beat the drum to let's amend a, an 1891 provision. It was slight amendment in 1901. Uh, constitutional amendment that really restricts what the legislature can do with regard to local taxation. It only lets our, our legislature let cities and county governments impose property taxes, occupational taxes, which are privilege taxes for working or conducting business in the jurisdiction, and franchise fees. So we have no consumption-based elements. Even though you and I, when we travel to, to Tennessee, contribute to that local government's budget for that infrastructure and those services that we enjoy, and it's that way in, in 38 or 39 states across the country. We make that contribution because they can collect on a consumption basis. In Kentucky, our local governments can't. So, so when tourists come here, when people come from out of town, there's no way to collect revenue to help support that infrastructure and the services that they're attracted to They come here. So we need to be able to diversify the revenue. We are heavily reliant on those occupational taxes. About 60% of our revenue from city governments is generated do you, on occupational taxes. Do you find irony in that the state wants to do away with its own income tax, the, but, but is forcing the uh, local governments to rely on it? And, and right now, the, the, in the legislature's defense, they have no other option because the constitutional provisions restrict right. them from what they what they can do but I think a local government tax code could dovetail nicely with what the state's doing in terms of its reduction of, of the income tax that perhaps some of the local reliance 
on a productivity-based tax could be reduced. What we wouldn't want to see is a mandate that it be completely eliminated because that a, a sales tax or a tax similar to that would not be able to offset some of the occupational tax revenue in many of our, our communities. So when we see reforms, the first step at doing that is asking the voters whether they can trust the legislature to, to uh, enact legislation if they approve that constitutional amendment to enact legislation that would provide that greater greater deal of flexibility. Then it's up to the cities to make their decisions. Then it'd be up to the city. Uh, yes, sir. Has working from home impacted uh, some cities, and, and some more than others, but where where people can work wherever, if they're not in your city limits, yeah. you're, they're not paying those taxes. Now that's a privilege tax. Uh, it, it, the occupational tax is a privilege tax. So when you're not working inside the city, you're, in, you're not required to, to remit payment or a portion of the wages or, uh, or payroll on that, it has impacted it. Uh, in some communities, it's been a, a negative impact. I'll, I'll give you Frankfurt, uh, the city of Frankfurt and the city of Covington. The city of Frankfurt, as, as state workers, uh, did more remote work. Uh, that lessened the revenue, on occupational revenue coming into Frankfurt. Uh, Covington's experienced a decline. Then we've had some other some other smaller communities see a, see an increase as a result of of the change. So it, uh, it it doesn't affect everybody in the same way, but it does kind of redistribute because it is for the privilege of working in the jurisdiction that it's not based on solely where you live or solely solely where you where you work. You're in a legal uh, entanglement with Airbnb right now uh, in an effort to collect taxes on the short-term rentals and and to, to force companies to withhold and pay that tax, right? Yeah, yes, sir. We uh, we worked with the legislature in the 2022 session in that uh, in that budget session to get legislation put on the books that would require uh, uh, on ter uh, online brokers to collect and remit the the tax the same way that our bricks and mortar hotels and motels do in the in, in throughout Kentucky if they do impose a transient room tax and uh, that legislation passed and and most everyone's in compliance with that we've had a as you mentioned before Airbnb uh, has, has not collected and remitted to most local jurisdictions so there's an effort from local communities and tur local tourism commissions to ensure that they they're compliant like the uh, other short-term rental uh, brokers and, and and helps provide that equity with with bricks and mortar hotel and motel uh, doing the same doing the same types of business. Only smaller cities have the option of restaurant taxes, uh, and, and yet, you know, a lot of the <laughs> large restaurants are in the larger cities. Yeah. Does the, the league believe that all cities should have uh, that option? All cities, all cities should be have that option, uh, and, and it's it's based on that antiquated, outdated, now decade long repealed uh, uh, constitutional provision that created the classification system that really wasn't being utilized in the right way, and uh, uh, so so some of it doesn't make sense. Like Elizabethtown, which would be considered a bigger city, used to be a fourth class city. They can impose a tax. Madisonville can't. So so it was originally for fourth and fifth class cities, but, but cities sometimes weren't moving among their, 
their classes. There's a lawsuit on that right now in Franklin Circuit Court, where the where the uh, where we have a city that's claiming that that's unconstitutional, violates the Equal Protection Clause and special legislation uh, provisions of the Kentucky Constitution. But but we want city leaders. I mean, you know, as, from a collective standpoint, city leaders to have the same tools and resources across Kentucky. It doesn't make a ton of sense why Richmond can't consider that, while just just to the south, Berea, Berea can do that. And same with Elizabethtown and, and Radcliffe or, or Madisonville and, and Hopkinsville. They kind of look and say, you're able, you're able to use this tool to, uh, uh, to enhance tourism and, and quality, uh, quality projects that would help bring people in uh, to visit our communities. But we can't do that, even though we're similarly situated or similarly sized. So there's a definite equity point on that that needs to be be uh, discussed. Everybody wants to feel safe, uh, and and these days, uh, you know, uh, it's a real priority. How much responsibility do cities have to be sure that their first responders are properly trained and properly equipped and able to respond quickly to situations? That that is a core function, uh, a backbone. In addition to utilities of, of of city governments to have police, fire, EMT, and to provide those responses. I think Kentucky is probably one of the best states in the nation in terms of the way that it does the delivery of training and services for for our law enforcement officials. Probably uh, you have to go through the Department of Criminal Justice training uh, down, in, down in Richmond uh, in order to be certified, what they call POPs certification, in order to exercise law enforcement authority. The, the taxpayers of Kentucky and the Commonwealth of Kentucky uh, fund that training that they view it so important off a of state insurance premium tax surcharge. The same with firefighters training and, and EMT training, dispatcher training. We have a great system. Uh, I think when you look at Kentucky's trained law enforcement and trained firefighters, we probably have one of the one of the best systems. And we always supplement that too too locally. But it, it is a major responsibility of the city and major responsibility of city officials to ensure that uh, that those that are delivering the services know what they're doing. Homelessness is a growing issue in the country. Our cities are seeing it. Uh, Louisville and Lexington certainly have major long-term issues. Uh, but now other uh, smaller cities are also uh, dealing with the, the issue. And it's, and it's growing as they try to grapple with unhoused folks uh, within their communities. Uh, what do you advise city leaders to do about we, homelessness? We have, you know, Lexington and Louisville, you, you, you hear it, but, but now when we get calls from Harrodsburg and Paducah and uh, uh, Eastern Kentucky cities as well, you, that, that you would not think necessarily that, that you would see a major homeless homelessness issue. Um, it, it is about the programs, a lot of partnerships with non nonprofits, uh, uh, shelters, and other other things of that nature in order to do that training, rehabilitation. So that's cooperation with community technical college systems uh, and and other types of, of nonprofit providers. Uh, substance abuse treatment uh, partnerships are extremely important. So so a city a city government or a county government or the state government by itself is not a single solution. This this implicates so many sectors across so many uh, different different providers. We we have to address the housing issue in in Kentucky. It's not just a city issue; it's a national issue, as you as you mentioned. We have a we have a shortfall in in Kentucky of affordable of affordable housing. That's mainly because the construction industry hasn't kept up 
kept up with the with the demand. Do you encourage uh, city governments to you know to assist as they can in those uh, those housing needs? We do because it yeah. impact it because it impacts the quality of life. So so it, so simple as uh, as some of the policies they have adopted uh, with related to land use. You know we encourage them to to make that process easier uh, for development to occur. And then on the homelessness issue, uh, that certainly impacts the quality of life. That can impact public safety, just the attractiveness of the community. So we see more and more cities stepping up, spending their general fund sources to address those those issues. Any other priority you're going to have in this session watching this uh, the, we, the we, laws made? We do. we got to continue to watch the transportation uh, funding models as, as, as the nation evolves to more electric vehicles. We have to, that, that the income for maintaining our streets and roads and our highways from a state perspective in Kentucky is generated from the gas tax and as we as we migrate away it may be a little slower than what some have predicted then we've got to look at how that revenue is being replaced and and how we can maintain a good solid and, and create a good solid infrastructure source that's so important to our communities both both at the state level most of those highways run through run through cities but for city streets county roads that transportation network and the and the future of that we've got to keep a close close eye on and hopefully get some good reforms so we can be prepared through this transition jd cheney appreciate you coming by from yeah. the kentucky league of thank cities thank you bill appreciate enjoy it. It. stay with us we'll be back with brian milam talking about uk great tim couch's selection for the college football hall of fame kentucky newsmakers continues in a moment Welcome back to WKYT's Kentucky Newsmakers. Tim Couch wowed the fans in Leslie County before he did the same thing at the University of Kentucky in the 1990s. And that's when the quarterback was on his way to a career in the pros. But it took until this week for Couch to be named to the College Football Hall of Fame. Now that that has happened, WKYT Sports Director Brian Milam is here. He's been along covering a lot of that magical ride through the years. Brian, thanks for stepping in. We appreciate it. Yeah, glad to be here. I know you counted a privilege to cover Kentucky sports mm -hmm. and uh, uh, Tim Couch uh, has to be one of those highlights. It was a different feeling when Couch and Hal Mummy, you have to give Hal Mummy a lot of credit because he instituted the air raid offense and when UK played U of L in 1997, that opening game at then Commonwealth Stadium and Couch throws for 398 yards four touchdowns, you knew instantly there is a new era about to begin. Yeah. And it began and it continued for a couple of years, which was amazing. Was it a foregone conclusion that Tim Couch would come to Kentucky? Not really, because he wanted, at the time you have to remember who was the top dog in the country and yeah. Tennessee had Peyton Manning. And his idea was, I'm gonna go to Tennessee, sit a year or two behind Peyton Manning, depending on what he would do with his career, and then be the heir apparent. And uh, Albert Wayne Couch, Tim's <laughs> father, said, no son of mine is going to play in Tennessee. And he comes to Kentucky and, and uh, just revolutionizes UK football. And you said when the, the Kentucky scouts and coaches would come around, there was a different reaction in Leslie County. It was. Hayden, when Bill Curry would show up, it was as if a, a rock star had showed up, uh, a president. 
when Phil Fulmer and others showed up, it was, we don't know who you are. Uh, yeah. You know, you're wearing orange. We're a, we're a blue country here. <laughs> uh, Tim Couch talked to reporters this week, uh, 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 humble, uh, certainly. Sure. But, uh, you know, this it was a long time coming uh, it was. For, for him to be uh, inducted uh, into the Hall of Fame. He mentioned that, too. He said, you know, I've he's been on the ballot, let's say, for at least a decade. And he saw other people go in front of him, other quarterbacks go in front of him. And he thought, well, you know, I was better than that guy, and I'm better than that guy. And it's a, that's the competitive nature all athletes, yeah. I think, have at some point. And, uh, but once when that phone rang or his family told him, hey, you're in, he said all of that kind of bitterness maybe went away because now he is in elite company. Well worth the wait. Oh, no question. What, no question. What made him so special as a player? He was so intelligent. First off, let's just look at the physical attributes right. that he's got. He's 6'5". He had a cannon for an arm, um, but very intelligent. You know, his older brother, Greg, played at EKU, a smart man in his own right, very good athlete. And he also, when he was in high school, had Mike Whitaker as a head coach. Mike Whitaker went to UK for a year, played under Roy Kidd at EKU, was all-conference at Eastern. And so he had a great upbringing in coaching and structure. And then, yeah, you look at how he matured physically, but how Mummy, if how Mummy does not come here, if CM Newton says we're going to stick with this, this, and that, we're not going to throw the ball. Tim Couch may not be in the College Football Hall of Fame. He it yeah. definitely would not have been the number one draft pick if Kentucky had not changed everything. Yeah. And that game plan to fit his his skills. So a perfect storm, really. Absolutely. He played in the pros about, yeah. what, five seasons? About five yeah. years. You know, yeah. the number one yeah. pick of the Browns in the expansion Cleveland Browns, 1999. Yeah. And probably no one man, meaning Couch, was expected to do more with less around him. Kevin Johnson was one of his receivers. Great athlete, but he was a rookie, too. And Couch got beat up. And, and that is, for some of those pundits that think, oh, well, this didn't happen. He should have done this. Unless you've been there in the trenches, you don't know what it was like. And we physically saw him get destroyed week after week after week. And that certainly will shorten his career a great deal. Does he seem to enjoy uh, this point in life and, and, and be, you know, looking forward? I think you have to because yeah. when you are on top of the world in high school, you're on top of the world in college, and for a moment you are that meteor, that top of the world in the NFL. And then as I mentioned to him earlier this week, I said, you know, at some point in our careers, the cheers go away. You're not in front of 60,000 people every day. You're not this. And he said, yeah, you're right. And he said, but when you become a Hall of Famer, those accolades, those people start coming back in and say, hey, I was there when you beat Alabama and the goalposts came yeah. down. And I was there when you put seven touchdowns on Indiana back yeah. in 97. And, and um, it, it's a great topic when you get to talk to a Hall of Famer and you get to rekindle. That's the one thing, one of the great things about sports. It is endless in its rehash. And sometimes as we get older, <laughs> that rehash, we add a little extra relish to the hot dog, right? <laughs> it's a, it's a, right. And, and a whole new title. Uh, and, yeah. and so, uh, you know, the induction will be coming up uh, later this year. Yeah, right? December 10th in Las Vegas. And I guarantee you there will be a couple of people from this TV station uh, en route to Las Vegas to cover what I, I believe is the most important. Is he the greatest UK Wildcat of all time? That's up for debate. But I think he is the most important because if Couch does not come to Kentucky, the air raid doesn't happen, 
where is UK football mm -hmm. at that point? Mm -hmm. uh, because he also, they, they say Commonwealth Stadium, Kroger Field now, is the house that Couch built. He, I don't know if he built it, but he certainly refurbished it. And you know they closed in the stadium, added yeah. 10, 15,000 extra seats. And uh, every time Tim Couch's name is mentioned, Kroger Field, Commonwealth Stadium, the fans will explode. And um, and as he mentioned earlier this week, had NIL been around when he was around, <laughs> he said he probably would have had to take a pay cut right. to go to the NFL. <laughs> I imagine he's still doing okay. Uh, yeah, he's all right. right. Uh, okay, right, quickly, uh, we learned this week the basketball cats are the all-time number one team in the country in the AP poll. Right. And that was interesting. We know what a legacy that program is. Yeah, right? 75 years the AP poll has been around in Kentucky has they edge out North Carolina, they edge out Kansas, UCLA, and the like, and uh, considered the number one team in college basketball. And with Kansas having its all-time wins list shortened because of improprieties, Kentucky is now again on top of that list with most wins. And uh, but yeah, they they Kentucky was in 75 percent of all polls in 75 years. Yeah. I mean that's a great run. People would get me if I didn't say, "What do you think about this year's uh, team and the chances?" I right? jinx. I personally, I take responsibility for the 2019 team losing to Auburn because I said, "Get your tickets from Minneapolis. It's going to happen." This team is special. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to go any further because I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> all right. Brian, I don't think people know enough about you to know that you enjoy the culture of Kentucky, yeah, the history, and we have a lot of fun behind the scenes sure. here, uh, talking about that and appreciate your appreciation of, uh, of all Kentucky is. Yeah, right? you got to know where you came from you if, got you, it. if you have to know where you're going to go. <laughs> right. you got it. We'll be back in just a moment. We'll wrap up Kentucky Newsmakers on WKYT. We hope you'll stay right there. We do want to thank you for joining us for this edition of Kentucky Newsmakers. We'll have coverage of the Martin Luther King activities in Lexington on Monday on air and online. And, of course, we continue our legislative coverage as well on WKYT and WKYT.com and our news app. That's Kentucky Newsmakers. Have a good week ahead.